Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. you with like taking care of plants oh god (laughs) you know i i have two uh plant plant babies uh now Mm -hmm. and i'm getting much better you know it's really given me a sense of responsibility like i feel like i can Mm -hmm. maybe handle more now uh but i think you know they haven't died yet and Mm -hmm. i've had them Mm -hmm. for quite a bit so you know i think i think fairly well how about yourself I have great intentions for plants. I dream of having a garden or a farm one day. Yeah. I read, you know, I read a whole book, you know, last year about basically a couple from New York. You know, one's a writer, one's a photographer. They move out to rural Vermont to start a goat farm. Oh, wow. And I'm just like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. And yet I have struggled keeping a lot of plants alive Hmm. i'm very nervous because my my house currently uh, because we we have like a lot of easy to take care of plants but because of that we have fungus gnats and they are driving us crazy so i have ordered two pitcher plants two carnivorous plants and the hope is and they're a little bit more tricky to take care of. These ones are supposed to be the easier ones. Okay. But I am hoping that they live. Right. That being said, like every time I've tried to grow basil, it doesn't work. Mm. But I have a pot that I just had dirt in. I tried to grow rosemary. It di- it started growing, then it died. Right. And I was just, I had been cooking squash. And I just took the seeds and threw it in there. I was like, what the heck? And now there is a squash plant growing. Whoa. It is so, and it, and it's like, I didn't even, I mostly ignored it. That's why now it's just going for it. My yeah. God, you birthed a child, a plant mm-hmm. child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That <laughs> dude. No, I feel you with that. That is, if you think about it, plants are sort of the organism that like mm-hmm. you can kill from neglect and right. there's not really the moral issue of anything else. I mean, I guess, yeah, but it's <laughs> <laughs> still not great. It's not a good thing, I guess, you know. I mean, like, mm-hmm. having a garden is great, but it's a pain in the mm-hmm. ass, let me tell you. Because yeah. I I literally just got done over, over the weekend, uh, the past weekend, building, like, what do you call those garden boxes for my dad's garden? Right. Yeah. Like a raised bed. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. With cedar wood. I felt like real, a real Ooh. Bob the builder. I, it was great, man. I was like, see, then it goes to my head. Cause then I'm like, I can do Like, what am I doing? I'm in a museum. I have a like starting art career. I could be like a gardener, man. This is my call. Like, this is it. And then I realize I hate bugs. And like, sometimes I genuinely hate being outside. I love it. And I hate it. It's a very interesting relationship. It's like mm. when I played Stardew Valley too much for like two months straight. And I was like, this is like, this is it. 
Like, I could be a farmer. I'm going to move to a small rural town somewhere Mm -hmm. that everybody's accepting and loving, and it's going to be amazing. And I'm just going to grow rutabagas, and it's going to be awesome. And that's, um, you know... Sometimes I, I, that's my, that's my, um, my backup plan, if you will, or the fantasy of I'm going to run away and just become a farmer. Uh, I had every time I've either like been let go from a job or I'm struggling to find a job or something like that is the very specific fantasy I have just to get away from everything. I mean, you know what, man, I, 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 I used to be like one of those people who didn't understand like somebody just being like, I'm going to the mountains. Like I'm just going to leave mm-hmm, society. Mm-hmm. And now I get it. Now I'm like, I could do you, like, you, I get you want it. it. You want to pull an into the wild. Well, he died. So maybe not um, in a bus. But, and then, yeah. And then Eddie Vedder wrote a bunch of songs about him. Did he really? Yeah. The, for the, for the movie. Oh, Eddie that's Vedder right. For the, the you know, I own the movie. Why did I know that? Society, you're a crazy breed. I hope you're not lonely without me. He's he's got an interesting story because the mm-hmm. it's definitely like he prepared a lot to go do that. I and then God, that ugh. it's funny because we had to growing up in Florida, we read that part of that book. I think we watched part of the movie in okay. my English class in high school. And then moving out west, you find people that, you know, part of their jocularity is the ability to camp safely. Yeah, and that's true. they just sort of mock him. Oh, <laughs> I mean, for, for, for kind <laughs> I mean, of two yeah. reasons. One, because like people out west are like, huh, idiot, you know, like died in the wilderness. And then yes. which which is kind of cruel. And then yeah. there's the other thing, I think. It was right about that time where people really, really started turning on the idea of like Mm -hmm. rich escapist philosophy. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I will say this, though, after watching the movie, because I tried reading the book, but wasn't that into it at the time. Maybe I Mm -hmm. should revisit. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is a very good message to buy the book about plants before you eat them. So I'll take that. Yeah. Because now I know like when I have family members or people who are like, we could go out in nature and like, you know, you can pick berries and you can eat plants. I'm like, you'll die. Like, that's the rule number one. Don't eat plants unless you know what it is. You will die because you don't know what those plants do. Meat, well, you can eat yeah, meat. I, I follow mushroom people on TikTok and they're always like, this mushroom is delicious. This mushroom will kill you and there's no cure. And I'm like, I don't, I do not have the confidence to tell those mushrooms apart. I, yeah, man, I've always wanted to, my, my family in, in Italy goes mushroom picking on their own property all the mm-hmm. time. And it's one thing I want to learn eventually, but I feel mm-hmm. like I've passed the threshold of being able to retain that knowledge. So like, I, I asked my mom it's about never, that. It's never, it's never too late. I well, guess, but I'm terrified too, of it's dying. Too late when, it, when, when you eat a toxic mushroom, I guess that's when it's too late. Exactly. That's my fear you know? for sure. Cause I know mm-hmm. that there's, that's why like when I asked my mom, I was like, we should just like grow mushrooms or pick our own mushrooms or whatever, like go into the wild and get them. And she's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to die. Like that's a you terrible went from, idea. You know, possibly having some porcini to, yeah. oh, Death. poor Samino. Yeah. How'd he die? He freaking ate a mushroom and died. Mm-hmm, That's what mm-hmm. I want on my gravestone if it happens that way, though. So, I mean, you how, heard it here I, first. I really, I really foresee, 
I foresee a lot of people in our age group having headstones with mushrooms on them. Oh my god, yeah, cottagecore is going to really be taken to the grave, literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, I mean, good for them, I guess, in that case. Yeah. I mean, speaking of things that stick around for a while, radiation. <laughs> oh? Well, Joe, today in the Uncanny County Museum, up above us, we have a kind of terrifying angel made of rebar. It is supposed to represent the third angel in the book of Revelation, uh, that when it sounds its trumpet, a star falls and all the waters are poisoned. And Mm. the original one has been erected on a plinth in Chernobyl Mm. in the Ukraine. And every year there's a ceremony on uh at night and the evening of april 25th on the uh the anniversary of uh well the night before the anniversary of the chernobyl disaster um and basically a vigil is held there are performances by survivors in the forms of poetry and songs and it's essentially an evening mass Mm. and it's uh a very interesting, very new ritual. And to me, this is sort of, I I feel like there aren't enough sort of ceremonies kind of like this yet, but we're going to start seeing more, I think, where we're going to, I think, start to see these memorials to environmental disaster more and more. Yeah. Um. Because, you know, I think it's it's one thing like when we have memorials to a war memorials to a battle this is something that is ongoing and there's this just immediate reverence for the the ongoing pain of the communities that were uh, pulled away from the region the people that died and the people that are slowly dying now still it's uh it's it's a really really shocking thing that i i don't think uh, a lot of people have uh paid attention to now now that we are uh just past 35 years out Jeez. from the chernobyl event and today at the ucm i thought it would be an interesting exhibition to talk about what is going on now because Mm. you know maybe if if you have an interest in this you've maybe seen the hbo reenactment documentary thing maybe you have some knowledge of like what happened on that day april 26 1986 but this is kind of an opportunity to talk about how this is unfolding now how this history is being written and how we're reckoning with something that on the one hand feels very close, maybe in history. On the other hand, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's a lifetime ago for other people. Yeah. I I mean, absolutely. I think it's interesting as well to focus maybe on the, on the contemporary side. Um, whereas uh-huh. it's, it's now, I mean, because you know, you have the HBO show, there's other uh, movements back in time where you're kind of, it's very much focused on the past, uh, yeah. which is fine, you know, and it's important to to re- to go back and maybe analyze further something that 
especially during the Cold War or the end of the mm-hmm. Cold War, you know, may have been shown a bit differently. But now, you know, sitting and realizing and, and, and understanding maybe those, the consequences, but also the rapid changes that have happened that maybe mm-hmm. were unexpected a couple of years ago. And I mean, yeah. I think, I mean, it's probably worth also recapping maybe what happened, just in case yeah. there's anybody on our tour who doesn't know. But Chernobyl was a nuclear disaster that happened in Pripyat, U- Ukraine, right around the outside of it from one of the uh, nuclear facilities. And on April 26, 1986, at night, it, um, it had a minor explosion that essentially caused the core to... Um, so they lost control of reactor four and essentially begun a nuclear meltdown. And there was also mm-hmm. the really the main problem was a fire that was happening on the roof. And at first, you know, yeah, it was, didn't it like burn for like ten days? Yeah, it was crazy because it because it was burning graphite. And at first, yeah. they didn't want to believe that it was graphite because that was impossible that the core would have exploded. And it was supposed mm-hmm. to be um, just something that was happening. So they're trying to put it out. The problem was in order to put it out you had to get close to be able to put sand and such on there, but the radiation levels coming out of the facility were so strong that, you know, it essentially would kill anything within minutes um, Mm -hmm. and damage electronics as well, which I know they've tried with helicopters, they tried with robots and such. So to keep in mind as well, you know, the people weren't evacuated until much later. And so I know that the firemen who were first on the scene were in critical condition within days and especially in weeks. And those mm-hmm. in the city who went to go watch the explosion and, or were just living there also had um, effects as well on them. And it definitely caused a lot of issues. Yeah. There was like, there was like that bridge that like people were watching yeah. from and like most everyone that watched it happen. Exactly. Uh, died or, you know, suffered from radiation sickness. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's terrible. And, you but know, it's, it's, it's so horrifying because it's a thing that cannot be seen is not necessarily immediately felt. And it right. is this, I think the, the, the sort of almost like, biblical religious scale of something like this happens like it feels almost mystical like you are dabbling in some kind of other power because it is it is something that does not present danger the way that other Mm. things do yeah i would i I agree with that and Mm -hmm. in that way actually as as well i mean it's it it's it's not as I think cinematic as people often look at it as well though right you know because radiation mm-hmm. poison just just like it takes time and event and then well, yeah even... but but you have in your head like Marvel comics glowing green yeah stuff exactly or like any video game like Fallout or stuff like that you know it's a completely different vision than what it actually is and I mean it's not to mm-hmm. say that it's not horrifying depending on yeah. how bad the burns are but. It's still, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's a, it, it could be very minor. Yeah. And I think the fear with this as well was that because the fire was burning and this was happening, it was going into the air and it basically affected Ukraine as a whole. It affected mm-hmm. parts of the Soviet Union and then it affected Europe because it was moving yeah. in the, in the, in the clouds. And then, you know, when it rains and such. So I know yeah. like iodine was distributed, I think later in Ukraine because that helps mm-hmm. with the radiation and stops it. But, um, you know, this was like an international disaster as well because the Soviet Union's not gonna yeah. announce, hey, we made a bad mistake. So I know there was like a legal battle about this. There was a lot of issues regarding it. 
and there was a lot of secrecy and conspiracy. And I think if you're interested in that, I would give the show a watch, the Chernobyl on HBO, if you have it. It's yeah. very good. There's a few documentaries out there as well that covered the more specific approaches mm-hmm. to this as well. I don't know how much we want to get into that because I don't think it's a part of our tour today. Yeah, and also, they're not paying us. To and they're not paying us. So that's that's show. that's it, HBO. Um, that's your that's, yeah. that's the last of it. <laughs> Hi there, my name is Colby White, and I'm one of the hosts from Force Football Facts, a podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account, while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. Yeah, but I mean, the thing about all of that is, you know, we don't even have necessarily an exact number on how many people worked to uh, clean the area. You know, that is to say, uh, churning up the basically going through and trying to bury or burn uh anything on the surface that could potentially spread the radiation. Um, It's estimated, but there are no exact numbers. Likely over half a million people worked as what were called liquidators. Um, And it was their job to... They they were cleanup workers, and they needed so many people because you kind of had a person and you had a set amount of time that that person could work. Right, uh, right. At, at, in in the in this uh, what what's now sort of called the exclusion zone. Mm-hmm. Um, to give some more numbers, uh, about um, one hundred sixteen thousand people were evacuated. Pretty uh, in in Jeez. sort of the the first wave. Um, they established that uh, thirty kilometer exclusion zone. It was expanded a little bit to some other regions later. And an additional 234,000 more people were moved uh, from other villages mm. and regions uh, wow. f- following. And the, the the bizarre thing about this is some people were only given a couple of hours to prepare and pack. They were told you could return in a few days, and the majority of them have never been able to return. Right. Um, it, uh, it's... It, you know, you that I think that's the haunting thing about seeing a lot of those pictures is you do get a sense when you look at pictures of Chernobyl, you're kind of trying to imagine this elsewhere. It's the closest we kind of have to a post apocalyptic thing, not because, mm. you know, that there's craters in the streets and bodies everywhere, but you're seeing uh, you know, stuff left out from people just going about their lives. Just life just stopped. Yeah. And things were things were left behind very abruptly. Mm. Um it's uh it you know, but the the uh the interesting thing I that I kind of wanted to look at are the people that are still there. You know, when we're talking about these hundreds of thousands of people that were moved um to to avoid this exclusion zone there are still some people left. I mean, not nearly the number of people before, but you know, what it, what is it like living in a, a site that is a 
what I think we would think of as, you know, a, a nuclear wasteland, like what we assume will happen if we were to, you know, God forbid, have a have World War Three, you right, know? Right, right. Now, are people, people live there? Still people have relocated back? Yes. Interesting. Well, that's, that's interesting. There's kind of three groups of people. Oh, okay. There is a very small group of people estimated between 130 uh, and 150 people wow. that remain in the exclusion zone, and basically they are living on their ancestral farmland. Okay, interesting. A lot of them are in their 70s and 80s. Uh, a lot of them are women. Um, and they just sort of continue to farm. And... One of the one of the interesting things about Chernobyl that's especially been reported on a lot in the last decade is how vibrant the forests look at first glance. You know, mm. there's a lot of wildlife. There's uh, there is, you know, there's there's people that like go to Chernobyl biologists that go there to study things like uh you know, uh, wild cats and boar and animals that we, you know, typically associate with like a primeval European forest. Right. One of the things that's been kind of remarked is, wow, all of these animals are at least surviving, maybe not thriving. Sure. But are, it seems like even radiation is nothing in comparison to human activity when it comes to keeping these animals away mm. not to be all we are the virus you know <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but uh, it is it is interesting and you know you could wonder about this in more of a way of you know when covid came out uh, when covid came out when covid <laughs> dropped oh my god covid <laughs> dropped <laughs> um it happened People were very excited about like, oh, looking in the streets of Italy and there's boar wandering uh, around. Yeah. And we had this idea. Y your first read is that, oh, nature is reclaiming these it's, areas. It's healing, man. But in reality, what you probably have is just the noise that typically would come with traffic and activity and stuff just wasn't scaring them away, you know? Right. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's you know you if if you have a quiet day, you're going to see more birds and animals trying to you know cross the street and stuff. Yeah, the, 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 there just aren't cars. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of that false equivalency of like, oh my god, we yeah. stopped and now everything's healing. It's it's great, and you're like, yeah. well, that should also be the wake up call of it's it's there, and maybe there's that, some yeah. issues that need to be worked out, of course. But I don't know. How yeah, drastic. because I I I would hesitate to say this is a perfectly healthy ecosystem. It has. Yeah. Very high levels of radiation. I it's mean, probably not great for anything. Right, yeah. There are some species that seem to be able to tolerate the radiation. That's interesting. But then there are kind of crucial animals to a food chain that do not seem to be, uh, you know, coming... Their, their numbers do not seem to suggest a healthy ecosystem. Like, there aren't see, really okay. a lot of insects and spiders, uh, mm. or as many as they would expect in, okay. you know, what is basically 
uh, a, a forest that is slowly reconsuming um, a bunch of villages and towns. Right. There, there aren't very many forests. There are some species of birds. Those species of birds do seem to be uh, suffering from mutations quite often. Okay. Um, mm. There's a, uh, a short documentary on uh, YouTube, uh, I think uh, from the New York Times, uh, showing sort of these the growths on, uh, on a bird's beak that was oh, captured wow. there, and that's apparently quite common. Well, I guess that would have also been affected because they were flying... I'm assuming, you know, because birds fly, being in the air and where... Well, well, I guess, let me rephrase. Do you, Is this just something that would have been passed on then, do you think, that just the mutations and how that goes? Or is it just because of being in this area mm. and that it just kind of keeps building up? Because I was going to say, you know, that... Because yeah. I know that was a big... Like, birds drop dead from the sky because of, you know, when the radiation's in the air and yeah. you're flying, it's right where it is. Right. But, uh, well, here's... Here, here's the here's the interesting thing about that. So when basically when the uh, the explosion and subsequent fire happened, because you know the, this wasn't like uh, Hiroshima or something where there was a one big explosion. Right. You know, this right. is something where there was an explosion that you know caused the 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 failure of and meltdown, and then right. there's the fire that's spreading all of this material outward. Um, and and basically this cloud of nuclear debris that's raining down. There are three kind of main uh, things that that were of concern. There was uh, iodine-131, there's cesium-137, and plutonium-239. All of these are radioactive, but they all have different half-lives. Now, iodine one thirty one, its half life is only eight days. Okay. So if you if uh, so in eight days you have you know a a breakdown of half of you know half of the mass basically gotcha. uh, is decaying. Cesium one thirty seven thirty years. So okay. we are just kind of coming to the end of kind of that first half life of right. you know. So there's now about half of that you know uh right right cesium left but um the iodine is the one that in those first couple days especially that's something that would have been in the air it accumulates in the throat and it can cause pretty aggressive thyroid cancer oh boy okay so the cesium that has largely accumulated in, in the soil uh, uh and that emits uh a, a lot of gamma rays uh right. in in one article i read more than uh typical sunlight several times more than typical sunlight jesus and the cesium because it is in the soil you're you have thing anything living in that soil can potentially start to accumulate it because now we need to start thinking in terms of uh food webs um right right, right so right. as you as you go up you know from producers consumers second level consumers uh as far as organisms go this this is sort of the same reason why tuna fish have higher levels of mercury Mm. it's not because tuna are like magnets for mercury. It's because they're predators and predators are going to eat more things 
and accumulate more of whatever is uh, floating around in the ocean. Right, so right. you sense. sort of have these concentrations of these things. Uh, mushrooms, apparently, are very good at absorbing cesium. Oh, okay. And mushrooms are a big part of the diet of the people that are still living and farming, basically subsistence farming in Chernobyl. Okay. Oh, oh. Uh, yeah, but mushrooms uh, can potentially be sort of these uh, accumulators of the cesium. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Mushrooms eat decaying right. things. Mushrooms, you know, we think of them as plants, but they're not. They're fungus. Yes. Right, exactly. So they're, they're consumers. They're like us. They can only get their energy from other organisms. Hmm, right, right. So now, yeah. if I, it's just so if I understand correctly so that means that if they're absorbing this it would be that the mushrooms would then have the radio the radiation within them or do they like disperse it no they they have it within them i see uh, okay so, so if somebody's so, yeah. eating them then that's increased okay yeah that's not then correct. that can potentially be dangerous you know there's there's so many issues of groundwater there uh they, yeah, they boil exactly. the people that are living there have to boil all of the water that they right. uh that would make sense yeah um, I mean, because it's it's never mind the radiation; it's all contaminated. Oh yeah, absolutely. And occasionally they will test even cow's milk from the area, and will find you know because the grass that that cow is eating is going to have radiation, and it's going to accumulate in a consumer and uh, organism like a cow, right. and it's going to turn up in the milk. Yep, that would make sense. Okay. Now, where we get into, I think, the more existential problem is the plutonium-239. Gotcha. Its half-life is 24,000 years. Okay, that is a long way out. Uh, yes. Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so 30... Uh, 80? Eight, day, eight, eight days. Day, oh, no, eight days, 30 years. 30 years. years. 24,000 years. Ah! ah. Not great. Not <laughs> great. Yeah. Ugh. And that is toxic when inhaled. Right. Yeah, that yes. makes sense. So okay. what you kind of have is it's not necessarily the atmosphere itself that's toxic, like it would have been um, kind of in the uh, early days of this, you know. Uh-huh. Um, you have it from... You know, if things are burnt, if things are consumed from the land. And here's the other thing. It's not all evenly dispersed. There's very specific hot spots. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Of it. Right. So there's like places to avoid in a sense and navigate. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Like there's going to be a specific point that it seems to be concentrated at. Yeah, that was like in that Call of Duty Modern Warfare game, you know, that came out way back when, where if you went to the wrong <laughs> hotspot, you died, like, instantly. So, yeah, just like that. Chuck. I just imagine that's how, that's how everybody's <laughs> navigating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But I mentioned there's there's sort of three groups of people that live there now. Yes. Yeah. Um. You know, and... This all all of this stuff is, you know, still uh, reflected in the environment around it. Like even if you cut into a tree in Chernobyl, uh-huh. oftentimes you can see a, a change in color 
in the tree rings itself in, you know, 1986 and 1987, basically. Wow, okay. Yeah. That's but so second group of people that live there are actually fairly new arrivals. Oh. They are basically refugees from eastern Ukraine uh, that are escaping violence and warfare of, you know, uh, pro-Russian separatists that want to, you know, further annex parts of the Ukraine back into Russia. Um, mm. It is, uh, it, it's, it, it's really interesting hearing these people basically uh, leaving a war zone and because they kind of have this opportunity of this unsettled land moving there. Um, these, these people do not have much money. They basically live farming their own food. They get a little bit of money from the government. Um, and if uh, some of them pile their money together and basically buy the houses, some of them, you know, completely deteriorating. A lot of these houses, you know, haven't been cared for. Uh, many of them made of wood right. uh, that, you know, haven't been touched since the 80s. Uh, they're basically buying uh, houses from the old inhabitants, the people that now live, uh, you know, in in outside of the exclusion zone. The people that originally lived there still own their houses. So mm, they're buying, okay. you know, it's like, it, and and they sell them for like you know a couple hundred dollars if something's in really good condition a few thousand dollars sure but that's and and some of them can't even afford that but that's what they're buying and basically just living off of that and uh some money from the government to wow to to eke out a living there and it's you know it's it's sort of horrifying in one sense because you think wow these are families you know fairly young people living there and trying to, you know, raise kids there. One person living there even said, Radiation may kill us slowly, but it doesn't shoot or bomb us. It is better live with radiation than with war. I mean, they have a point. Yeah, kind of. Honestly, kinda. <laughs> pretty. That's, if, if you have to take the, the lesser of two evils, right? It's like, yeah, I think the the one that takes a lot longer is, but that that's man, that's so messed up though that it even has to be a decision though, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's well, like, these Jesus. you you realize nobody is the, 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 these people are being are being given an impossible situation, an impossible yeah. decision. You know, it's like, do you try to raise your kids in a war zone or in a nuclear, uh, you know, toxic environment? Yeah, literally, and, and neither one is good at all, or yeah. remotely acceptable. But uh -huh. it's oh Jesus, man, that's awful. Yeah. Now there's not that many of these people, but you know they're they're you know there's more and more of these refugees, and potentially sure. there will be even more as if violence sort of continues mm. uh, in in the Ukraine. But then you have a third group of people, and these are the people that, you know, participate mostly in this, uh, in this ceremony I mentioned earlier with the angel. And they're, uh, many of them uh, are, are just laborers. And there's about uh, 7,000 people that commute wow. in and out of the exclusion zone for work. Whoa. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, about 4,000 of them will do uh, 15 days a month or four days a week is, is kind of what they're allowed to spend there. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. And it's, but it's not all just laborers. I'm, I mean, cause some people, you know, they basically need to maintain the, uh, the containment uh, things. Uh-huh. Uh, in 2016, there was a new containment cover put over reactor four it's supposed to last a hundred years. Okay. Yeah. Right, yeah. But there's still people working in the power plant. Huh. Yeah. They have to maintain reactors one, two, and three. They oh, no longer wow. produce electricity, but they cannot be decommissioned until 2065. Whoa. Yeah. Uh,. Okay. Why? They they have to maintain those reactors. You I can't guess, just have right. mm. Yeah, you can't just abandon them. You know, that is one thing I think that is not thought of enough is the fact yeah. that it's not just all right, it happened, it's over. Uh, you know, eh, we mm-hmm. have to sacrifice the land and whatever. And it's like, no, 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 people still have to go work. They have to go do this. They have to yeah. fix it. Because if not, it gets significantly worse. And then the whole world has this yeah. problem. Jeez. Exactly. Oh, yeah, no. And I mean, there, there's there's constant danger of forest fires, which could, you know, spread oh, yeah. this even more if it gets up into the air. Because right now, it's mostly contained in the soil. And, oh, you know, yeah. if, if there was a massive forest fire through this area it would basically get everything back up into the atmosphere. Oh God. Yeah, that would not be good yeah. at all. Jeez. Yeah. But basically, uh, the, the interesting thing is, because, you know, they there's it's not all just like kind of, I guess, what we would picture of Russian and Ukrainian peasants, you know, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of scientists that live there. There's uh, at least 100 scientists uh, oh, wow. working at the labs at any one time there. Jeez, that's interesting. When it initially happened, a lot of the best scientists in the Soviet Union uh, basically all uh, congregated at Chernobyl. Right, right. You know, they all came there to study this. And it kind of is the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to study things. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when, when you think about it, there are still people alive right now that were born in a time before nuclear fission. Huh. I, I, I had a professor in undergrad, uh, and he would talk about how, you know, he was born in 1944. He was oh. born pre-nuclear, uh, you know, nuclear fission, nuclear power, nuclear bomb, whatever. Right. Um, so we don't really have an understanding of what the patterns are. Mm, yeah for how this will work we're seeing that the descendants the first generation at least uh, of the of the survivors of the people that were uh evacuated they their children do not seem to have mutations at a rate that is higher than uh other children okay gotcha Uh, yeah so we're not totally seeing we're still trying to understand what exactly the pattern of damage is because there's still danger, clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's not as obvious as we might think it is. Right. 
Yeah. And I mean, because even like, you know, I mentioned the birds earlier, but some of the birds even seem to be adapting to the radiation. Not all of them can stand it, but some of them seem to be adapting to it. So this is kind of this, it, it is grotesque, but it is this living experiment that where else are you going to go to study something like this that you know where you have nature overtaking a a previously urban area um and and has and has so much uh hot uh hot spots of radiation yeah i mean i guess it's it's quite literally one of the only places to do that yeah yeah it is like one of these only places and i think too it um you know, I, 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 maybe I, I don't want to derive too much, but the thing I'm thinking about as well as when we're discussing this and how, mm-hmm. you know, unique the situation is, even though it's devastating, yeah. of course, but how it's off, it's one shifting a lot and things are changing and we're kind of learning as it goes, yeah. uh, which I think presents an interesting opportunity and also a very uh, nerve wracking one. But then yeah. I, I also wonder too, how, do you think like this image of the decaying houses of what kind of has happened at Chernobyl of nature taking over again, but then also what it's done to the environment is what's shaped um, kind of our pop cultural vision of Mm. the apocalyptic disasters in this way. I don't want to derail too much into that because Mm. I I kind of want to also stay focused on these groups of people and where this has been moving. But I I think it's, it, it feels a little ironic, I guess, and also, yeah. uh, like, interesting that, you know, this seems like it could have been something that has been our, like, you know, mass-produced imagery of of an apocalypse, of a nuclear apocalypse or something like that. But then there's also now people reliving, just like you would in, like, yeah. a video game or in a movie, mm-hmm. in these same areas, or experimenting or, yeah. or researching. And it's, I, it does, it, of course, it's like, you know traumatic and awful and 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 rough for said people there but there's also this element of like well you know life goes on and we're just gonna do our thing here especially for those who return to their homes to their homeland you know it wasn't like yeah it's not a situation of nowhere to go it's a situation of we're from here we're just gonna come back kind of it sounds like yeah yeah i think you know i i think about when you say that i think about like kind of how we are now trying to understand the uh th- what we think of as ancient great cities and mm. their abandonment and in some sense like we've always wanted to imagine of a particularly violent or traumatic dramatic whatever end to all of these places right and maybe there were specific events that dramatic events that led to that that led to sort of you know that that idea of the course of empire and the eventual abandonment of a of a city but you know when we look at you know like the ancient cities in the americas that were abandoned uh the mounds i mean and then you know even rome mm-hmm. we kind of have an understanding now that just like you know, yes, there were probably like specific pressures. Uh-huh. But it also seems like when it also seems like the kind of more quiet apocalypse that yeah. we are in favor of now. The idea that 
people just kind of left Rome. People just kind of left these cities in what is now the southern U.S. and just sort of the 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 phrase that I've heard recently is uh, voted with their feet. Oh, that's interesting. I kind of like that. Yeah. And, you know, that this even archaeologically speaking explains kind of movements of, uh, you know, both both Native Americans and people in Europe that like, you know, these urban centers, if if something was no longer if it was no longer advantageous to live there, people moved somewhere else. Yeah. And it's just like you want to imagine in the, you know, you know, not hundreds of years later, but even just a couple of decades later, like walking the abandoned streets of Rome, like, yeah. And from and it just sort of seems like that that is what happened at one point in history and kind of in, even into the Middle Ages, like. Rome was just abandoned at, at, at one point and it was a ghost town. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was like completely left, though, right? I mean, no, I, 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 no, no, I, no, no. But I mean, I guess if we're comparing maybe, it, maybe to... the, the, those aren't those aren't quite the same examples, I guess. But there's certainly a quieter yeah. apocalypse than what we always envision. No, absolutely, it's not. It's not the um, the northern tribes coming down and then just burning it, and everybody leaves, and it's over. It's 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 something yeah. like it's it, that's that repetitively, but then also just infrastructure failing and people just moving out because yeah okay we don't have lead, water. the lead in the, the water lead. probably wasn't great either. not great and no one was there to fix it and they were like we're gonna go to you know gaul now and set yeah. up frank here so see yeah in, i mean look you know, look but... at look at the look at the contemporary neglect of detroit the yeah, yeah. one of the richest cities in the world that just is is in large part abandoned yeah st louis you know yeah that just just portions of the city people just leave you know and and those are you know stresses uh, that you know that's that's uh uh, again all of the all of these instances are incredibly idiosyncratic there's very specific reasons to all of them but i think they all still speak of this weird eerie quietness that we we assume will follow our absence. Yeah, I mean, I also think it's it's this. I think people. Ex- I think we expect more, right? Mm-hmm. Like spectacle. Yeah. I think we are. You know, we've been conditioned in a way maybe to expect something grander and fast paced. And I think this is partially due to media and film. But you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. But I think. At least for me, I'll use myself as an example rather than generalize. You know, I think that there's always this impulse of like, oh, that's it? Or like, oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think it's a defense mechanism as well. But like, I I think things are a lot quieter when this stuff happens. I think it's a lot more subtle because obviously like, you know, unless the sun burns out, days are going to keep going. You know, things are going to mm-hmm. keep happening. Things will change and move. And it's kind of in our own conscious ways of recognizing it to understand that. And I think we, and at least me speak, you know, for me wanting it to be something more like, Oh my gosh, it was grand. It's this, it's, you know, it's the Chernobyl nuclear explosion. It has to be, this, and yeah. then it's over and then you forget about it. And then no one can go there in the end, but that's not how mm-hmm. anything works. That's not yeah. how this goes. And you know, just this, it kind of does leave that haunting feeling of what's left over and what's maybe neglected and also what's just going to remain. But I think it's also that fear 
and mm. that yeah I, I, yeah i'm gonna bank on fear on this one that it's it's yeah. that that fear of what's what comes after death and what comes after mm-hmm. you know what's next in that way and you know we, yeah. we 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 look at the modern cities within the united states let's say because that's where we're both coming from that are new relatively in the course of history mm-hmm. but they could also collapse necessarily you know they could also mm-hmm. end up eroding and becoming something similar to this maybe not from radiation but from who knows what else and I think that it's this idea of something that stood and has now perished and become a modern ruin is terrifying, but also mm. interesting to kind of think about and to sit with and to yeah, try to well, understand. It's, it's, it's the, it's the Ozymandias thing, you uh, know, yeah. like even going back to like the romantic writers, like the idea of your whole empire turning to sand around you. Yeah. You know, exactly. and just how who who remembers you and all your great deeds and everything you know because there's there's kind of a question of what what we will do with these spaces as time goes on a lot of those scientists that have moved there they kind of just intend to spend the rest of their lives there yeah i mean i guess devote yourself one scientist elena bantova met her husband there and you know they've been working there for 30 years now and wow. that's just kind of where they plan to uh live out the rest of their lives yeah i mean and it's uh you're just sort of seeing this uh one one uh person who's who who basically works in it there uh evgeny uh valenti that that that, that can't be right um <laughs> the right pronunciation <laughs> but anyways he says in the soviet union the method was to cover everything with human lives huh <sighs> and i you know that is a very like i guess kind of russian idea of like just throwing a bunch of bodies at a problem that uh yeah that would be the on on uh on, yeah, that sounds about right. To that's be on through Russian history. Yeah, that yeah, sounds about right. but you know, you are also seeing. It's all. It's also interesting seeing a collective effort occurring, especially you know, right now where we're in the middle of a. Well, hopefully, we're in the tail end of a public health crisis, but has been exacerbated by a segment of the population that will not wear you know a very easy to mm. dawn piece of fabric that would you know spread the <laughs> that would right. hinder the spread of a deadly disease right you know but i guess you 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 have to kind of make sense of what collective effort looks like when you try to tackle something that is so enormous and something that is going to affect future generations and is going to require the sacrifice of future Mm. generations. And that is something that I think, you know, I think they bring this up in the, in the Chernobyl miniseries as well. You know, that whole like every generation must know suffering. Yeah. That, that, and like, you know, you'll do it because it has to get done and that's that. And it's kind of this, it's, it's the job your mm-hmm. your country needs it but also everybody needs it so you'll do it and that's that like there's yeah. really no choice but it's also very much in the soviet idea it's in a russian idea of sacrifice first but collective sacrifice not necessarily just one person it's not the it's not the individual you know i don't know now that might have changed but it feels like that that cultural yeah. root is definitely not gonna 
You know, that's not going to change. I don't think anytime soon of this idea of, okay, you know, we're scientists. This is what we has to be done. We need to keep this machine mm-hmm. running and it's going to keep running. And that's that, you know, it's a, yeah. it feels very much like that Eastern attitude. Whereas I think in the United States, you're not going to get that like ever. I don't think yeah, it's just, but, yeah. it, but there's not a history of it. It just, the country was I never mean, founded there, on there that is, idea. There is a history of public service. I think in the United States, it's not as the United States is maybe not as old, but there's, I still kind of hold on to some kind of hope for that. But, you know, it is, <laughs> the, the the issue is in the United States is we have such an idea of if you're doing the same thing that your parents do, it's not, unless you're in very specific fields, it's not necessarily a mark of pride. You want to be the person that breaks the cycle of the Mm -hmm. generation. The problem is when everybody does that, when everybody's an underdog, you get a very disorganized, um, you know, lack of collective effort. It's individualistic. It's, and I think that that's Well, yeah, but, but like, think about in the United States, like, but what's going to have to happen worldwide, and this is something that is, you know, becoming, this has been a real question kind of recently, uh, at least in some of the stuff I've been reading, is we have, because the, because we are going to have to deal with nuclear waste you know if it's from chernobyl if it's from japan or if it's from the united states or china or wherever we're going to have to deal with this material and we're going to have to put it somewhere and because of the half-lives of these things we they very likely will exist past the point of our current languages existing Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. So there have been a couple of proposals kind of recently, like what are we supposed to do with this if we can't just put it all in a place and put a sign that says, you know, don't open, you know, Mm. radioactive material inside, Uh, you know, don't don't dead open inside, you know, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um. For for all the walking for all the poor poor Walking Dead fans out there, Jesus. but what what happens when there's nobody left that maybe speaks the language that that is written in, especially if it's put in a remote enough place, you know? Mm, yeah, you know th- this is the setup to like a a movie where there's like an ancient curse and you know it's written in like ancient Sumerian not to release whatever right yeah right and they don't know so they open it anyway yeah. exactly there's a couple of suggestions one is to try to construct architecture that itself is so foreboding that it would tell people not to go in there okay that's one option the other is basically to establish an order of basically monks to carry on the knowledge and the tradition of how to keep people away and safe around radiation now that sounds more fun right (laughs) that that seems more interesting and 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 theatrical which i love um Mm. is it the most practical i don't know but yeah so so, i mean well you can kind of see the temptation there because you're like okay well oral tradition has preserved things 
for such a long time and some oral traditions uh, and things predate written language. So you would assume like, okay, if there was maybe a practicing order of people whose job it was to pass down this information, you know, you could have something like, uh, like, you know, indigenous Australians that have like oral histories that go back you know, thousands of years. Right. You could kind of see the potential of that, but you are then relying on organic people Mm, to continue living in one place and doing one thing. And you are kind of relegating them to that lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point as well. And it feels, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I could see the idea and understanding behind that and probably it being the most useful. Architecture would be great. Only problem is Tomb Raider. I mean, how many people actually go into <laughs> places that obviously they don't belong? Like, I'm pretty sure ancient cultures have built things like, hey, keep out of here. And we are like, huh, that's not going to stop me. And, you know, I mean, look at haunted houses, right? People go in a haunted house in every movie. So I don't think it stops anyone. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on that. Have they mm. not considered like any sort of foreboding design, like graphic imagery? But I guess that won't translate either, depending. Mm. Mm. It it's difficult to say, yeah, because you're you're trying to project into the future what culture yeah. will be like, and it's right, it's, and it's impossible. <laughs> like, it's impossible. It's also kind of it's like. You know, I, I was re I was reading a thing the other day that like as we try to figure out what exactly to call contemporary times, you know, since we're not postmodern anymore. Right. I read an article the other day even saying though like, oh no, postmodern never happened. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> okay. That's interesting. Um but that I you know, and this is all heavy art historical theory or whatever. Sure. But basically was saying that the the conditions some people scrutinize the definition of postmodernism and say that it doesn't is because it's so inconsistent, it doesn't mm. like qualify, I guess. Okay. I guess that makes sense. But it's like I still don't know, well, what are you gonna call it instead? And there's a couple other, you know, options and names, none of them as famous as postmodern, which is, you know, part of the problem yeah gonna be hard to get rid of that brand but at least since the modern the modernists you know their whole kind of take was that every chapter of history they felt like they could put in a chapter of a book that you could tell a story of a period of history and since we are from from the perspective of contemporary times describing history, we are then trying to describe what is happening now. And because we are trying to explain things as they happen, mm-hmm. we are in a, they would have been, considered themselves in a modernist condition. Like, well, what now, you know, right. now that we've defined history, what what do we call this now? You know, and it's, uh, you know that that idea has has been then challenged and stuff but there's still some interesting aspects to it i think mostly can you predict 
can you predict future culture? And with, you know, they didn't foresee the internet, but like right now we're seeing a, you know, sort of like what we feel like is this kind of decay as we just sort of rehash cultural touchstones from the last century without really making anything new. Right. Uh, And trying to just just to try to feel something i don't know so i i i don't even know how you begin to predict uh a culture that um will know to stay away from radiation i mean yeah i don't think well okay before i even jump into that i don't think it's possible to predict the future in this way at all Mm -hmm. i mean predicting the future is 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 you know, it, it. You know, subscribe to any theory you want, but yeah. in in all of them, there's variables. Things change, yeah. so to plan yeah. means that it will fail in that case. And I think worrying about it. Mm-hmm. I, let me preface this because this could be taken very badly. Mm-hmm. Not worrying about it is what got us into this position. Right. Worrying about it makes sure that nothing gets done. So how can you live in a present moment? Yes, plan for the potential of cultural complete change, right? For things to Mm -hmm. completely redo themselves in language to evolve past our own. Yeah. But then at the same time, not get so lost (laughs) in that. Because I think if you get lost in, like, you know, we look at old English. Look how much English has changed over Mm -hmm. centuries. You know, a lot. And I think, though, you can still go back and, like, read it. Like, you can still kind of understand. Like, there's obviously scholars out there who know much more more but you know there's it's not going to change that much that i Uh think if you you know it it could be something where maybe you're setting up conditions to enforce the change maybe it's i don't know maybe they write the book for how to remove radiation waste forever Mm -hmm. and i don't Mm -hmm. know i'm not going to propose any solutions because what do i know i'm not anywhere in this field (laughs) but i think it's actually it's an interesting like thought exercise and it's an interesting thing to kind of sit with because you know, it's like it, it just feels so it feels so opposite of what gets us into this mess, because I feel like short term thinking on useful solutions is what basically has set up the conditions for what we live in right now. And be it our, you know, global infrastructure on health or in mm-hmm. electricity or in, in power or even mm-hmm. in just how we, you know, get food, how that works yeah. and how it's a very short sighted and a very not thought through process because it's not really what's. The, the process of longevity and, and, and sustainability is not necessarily the thing in mind. It's not, you know, it's greed. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. but I also think in this situation, you know, that's that wasn't thought through. I'm sure when people were figuring out nuclear power, yeah. they weren't like, now this could have really damning consequences. How do we prevent that? It's, no, yeah. we're going to do the thing to get us this power now. And now we're tasked with dealing with it. And I think yeah there has to be a mindful solution that's not necessarily um, way too lost in the theoretical possibilities where none of it actually ends up happening or all of it happens who knows but it's also that like we're not going to not do anything because it's what's the point because you definitely don't want to get to that oh well why change it you know we're not going to be able to change it so why deal with it let's just let it be Uh because that doesn't solve anything that's just letting it erode and affect everybody and i don't think that's even a solution either so i don't know know, yeah i mean because at at this point we are currently starting to deal with it you know yeah and that it's like seeing the seeing the pictures of the the house of culture Mm. uh from the uh this national geographic article 
about um you know the the people that still live there and you know right. the sort of you know the things that they have there to you know entertain themselves and live lives and yeah you know they also have like they they also have a lot of cemeteries there because when people that you know were you know had to forced off of their farmlands and you know basically sent to go live in a bunch of concrete buildings that uh as you know outside of the uh, radiation mm. zone that a lot of them want to be buried oh you know back in back in their uh near their villages and their homes yeah um you know it's like it's already starting to deal with it and it's like i don't think i don't think it has to be a total sadness and surrender yeah because I, I i'd also i just finished a book recently that was sort of talking about you know this mom watching her two kids play and she's thinking about like you know they might they could potentially be the last generation of children to sort of like not be you know li- living on the edge of an environmental catastrophe and yet you know she's like it seems like more of a crime to not enjoy this moment to like yeah i think the way she puts it is not enjoy the last you know rays of sun before the day is over oh well wow. you know that's very poetic i like that yeah and like like she sees that as a greater crime than just you mm. know not enjoying something because it's about to be over and yeah. i think there's there's you know there's something noble about that and you know something that the things are going to be different but that can potentially be okay and mm. we can still make the most of it cuz i think humanity's been through a lot and we've overcome it uh in in some form or another it's it i think history shows us to in the end be cooperative and you know there's there's a lot of caveats to that statement we don't have time to go through all yeah (laughs) yeah i was like ah i mean yes but also no but yeah no i i get the it's a very well put sentiment i think and a very um you know what? Mm-hmm. It's just a very good one in being mi- it's mindfulness, right? It's mm-hmm. being uh, here in the present moment and not necessarily being too falsely optimistic, but also not being yeah. pessimistic to the point of just that you know that that neg oh god, I don't yeah. even know how you you know what I mean? Like it's just wishing for yeah. oh well, it's over. My you know, the kids, this is your last ray of sunshine, it's over. It's like no, you know. Yeah. It I I agree with that statement that it would be more of a crime to prevent that because you might as well enjoy it as is and then mm-hmm. things things do throughout history they'll have that way of working themselves out of course without its own fallout but I ha. yeah I know. It's <laughs> like oh is he going to get it? Uh but you know I think I I think it is a time will tell situation and I think it it's it's important to enjoy life at all times and to take it in rather than i think be too anxious about you know kind of where Mm -hmm. we're situated but then at the same time to also be aware and to be conscious of it and to be active about it but not necessarily dismissive either so i i don't know i mean everybody finds their own balance with that but i i do agree i think that that 
there is like a hopeful attitude that's needed because otherwise what are we left with? You know, it's just mm-hmm. pessimism and just nothing, nothing gets done. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you, you know, keep that attitude of, okay, you know, this is my balance. Mm-hmm. This is what it has to be. And this is, it's, it's kind of like we're talking about that Russian attitude. If it's going to get done, it just has to get done. And that's that. And we'll figure it mm-hmm. out. But I, and I think that's probably in the case of this and removing of nuclear waste yeah. and where things are going to move forward. You know, I re- do it. I'm recalling, I'm recalling a Yiddish phrase that my dad often says to me, and that is, God laughs when you have a plan, but he smiles when you have two. Interesting. Huh. I like that. There's often a short version of it that's just man plans and God laughs. Ah, I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I, I... Even though I understand the fatalism to be intrinsic to Yiddish, uh, I do kind of like that uh, yeah. little addition. Yeah, I agree. I, I like that as well. That's yeah. It kind of sums up my own personal feelings yeah. on things. Well, as you well. you put it very well yourself. I think just now. Um, yeah i I hope this wasn't too much of a downer for people or too made people too anxious to uh, visit the UCM today. Um, but this is an interesting topic and it's again, something to keep in the back of our minds Yeah. Uh, as we go into the future. We want to thank you for coming by today. What do you got going on, Joe? Um, not, Spaghetti not too Joe. much. Yeah, that's me. Spaghetti Joe of the wild, wild west. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, spaghetti Joe. Oh man. Maybe a comic series will eventually come out about me. Who knows? Yeah. But, um, um, no, I mean, not much, you know, I am, I am uh still working on some feature endeavors and projects you know submitting mm-hmm. being now out of graduate school submitting works into the into the world and seeing where that goes uh but you can mm-hmm. find one of those the midnight drive on radiopressa.org check it out um mm-hmm. i will keep everybody posted on new things as they develop uh mm-hmm. sam what do you got mm-hmm. going on how are things um things are good i'm uh i'm going to have a fairly big announcement uh soon about a new project that i would like to be working on the summer now that the semester's Ooh. finally over thank god nice, nice nice um yeah uh we're gonna watch cars three no we're <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'll be making some announcements about that too. Um, If you are an artist in the Tampa Bay area, my uh, girlfriend Allison and I have started a Discord server called Pelicandu, just uh, spelled uh, like the word Pelican and then D-O at Mm. the end. You can search for that server and join us. It's um, meant to be a... A uh, community of Tampa Bay area artists, so St. Petersburg, Clearwater, all those areas. Uh, if you would like to share references uh, and network with people, uh, you can also follow us on at uh, Pelican Do underscore TBA on Instagram. Um, so yeah, we should have some uh, more events and opportunities coming nice. up on that as well soon. Awesome! Awesome. Yeah, um, you can find uh, you can follow the museum after hours at Uncanny Museum on Twitter and at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. Um, we uh, had our recent uh, <laughs> our recent exhibit on the Skunk Ape uh, 
not flagged, but got a uh, <laughs> got a message from the CDC about Hydrox cookies. Yeah, so you know they don't cure COVID. So just a heads yeah. up. So we yeah, that. if you. If you uh, joined the museum recently because you were searching the tag uh, hydroxychloroquine or whatever, uh, yeah, welcome, welcome. We're sure uh, we're welcome to have a diverse ray of opinions uh, here at the sure. UCM. Yeah, yeah. Um, next week we have a very exciting special mm. guest joining us um should we say who uh what we're doing just yet or just give people uh, a teaser i mean i think it would be on brand to <laughs> um do it do a little tease to be the... a little burlesque about mm, it to yeah show show a little skin but leave something to the imagination you catching our drift or mid-drift, yeah yeah, yeah. nudge nudge, I mean. nudge wink wink <laughs> nudge nudge wink wink <laughs> <laughs> no it's gonna it's gonna be really go really excited um to have our guest on and i think it's going to be a very different and uh interesting tour mm-hmm, mm-hmm. put the kids to bed for this one next week yes yeah, yeah. all right uh you can find oh if you want to find me i'm at xanasaurus on instagram and i'm Josemino art on instagram and from the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters. And I've been Joe Semino. And Soviet Union is not goodbye. Bye! Bye.